0: Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the DailyDownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it DailyDownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, DailyDownForce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out DailyDownForce.com. That's DailyDownForce.com. And I'll see you in for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel-lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't the so, first steel they build I bet. No. no. You know, you, I think they were they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly aka dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenueers he wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match but he thought he was doing pretty good and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappear but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh and comes back towards him and it, it, as he said it was a game of chicken and i was the chicken and so he ran off the boat <laughs> and actually he was the guy who who caught junior johnson at his daddy still when junior got tangled up in a in a bar fence. <laughs> so check out the moonshine and motorsports racing podcast available on youtube dailydownforce.com and all of your favorite podcasting platforms and be sure to check out my regular show on nascar history the scene vault podcast hello my name is rick houston and welcome to the scene vault podcast your source for all things nascar history presented by qware maintain excellence
1: I started to work for Benny Parsons for $100 a week, working a hundred hours. We came back in, I looked down inside there, and I could see probably four inches of the bone in his forearm. We just had this gut feeling between each other when something occurred in our life, the other one was there. The Day
2: NASCAR. And all of us associated it anyway with NASCAR. Forget its past; as today we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade,
0: and my name is Rick Houston. And welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by Qware. And Steve, I don't know about you, I am not an F1 fan. I don't have anything against F1. Yeah, but that wreck yesterday in Bahrain with Roman Grosjean, Steve, that was a miracle.
2: I'll tell you what, that was the most frightening thing I think I've ever seen in any form of motorsports. That he walked away from that is incredible. Just incredible.
0: There is something to be said for safety. True. And I tweeted about this yesterday. I think Ryan Newman reminded us in February, and then Roman Groson kind of drove that point home yesterday. We can never, ever, ever get complacent on safety in whatever motorsports district. No,
2: you're absolutely right. And it's to the credit of many forms of motorsports, particularly F point and NASCAR, that they have made such great strides in safety. And the proof of that, we saw that just the other day.
0: I saw the numbers and I saw where he hit that wall at 137 miles an hour. And the impact was 52 G's. So and that it
2: tore up. I mean, it just tore down the guardrail. The car exploded in, in fire. And when it blew up like that, I thought, well, this is going to be uh, a fatality. But amazingly, it was not a credit to the safety strides that had been made.
0: Well, to see him walking literally out of that yeah. fire, right? That was, I mean, that was just something straight out of a, of a science fiction movie.
2: No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I know he's injured, but it could have been so much worse for him. So again, I can't emphasize this enough. Every time we hear about something being done in safety, any kind of motorsports, that's a very good thing. That's the thing that should be done.
0: Well, Steve, as Roman recovers, I saw on social media this morning that Pietro (laughs) Fittipaldi will be filling in for him at the next F one race and (laughs) Pietro got his start racing at Hickory motor speedway. You're kidding me. He won the track championship at Hickory motor speedway in 2011. And there he is going to be making his debut in F one. So from Hickory motor speedway to F one. Yeah. That's, that's a little bit of a jump there.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'll tell you what Hollywood wouldn't buy that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Steve, this week, we are going to share the first part of an interview that I did with Will Cronkrite, who most fans would know fielded a car for Dale Earnhardt in 1978. I think it was actually four races that Will and Dale raced together. And that kind of opened the door for Dale to get a full-time ride with Rod Osterlin the following season. And uh, Steve, that's basically what I knew of Will. I didn't know a lot about his career. But as we have found in virtually every interview that we have ever done, there is so much more to Will's story. And Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. It led to what was probably the most emotional moment of my career and a moment in which I simply did not know what to do or how to proceed or what to say. And Steve, all I can say is this. It was a very, very powerful emotional moment.
2: Well, given the subject matter, I can understand that completely. I think anybody talking to Will about this particular subject would feel the same way.
0: And Steve, basically what led to those emotions from Will, I can't even imagine it. In December of 1969, just before Christmas, Will lost his wife and his daughter and his wife's unborn child in a car wreck. And Steve, I cannot conceive of going through something like that. And he and his wife, his wife's name was Sandy. His daughter's name was Kelly. But he and Sandy had experienced heartache before even that. They had had a midterm miscarriage. They had also had a child be stillborn. And then along came Kelly. And I think Kelly was obviously the light of their lives. And then to have this happen, Steve, I can't even... I can't even conceive Mm. of it.
2: It's hard to imagine a tragedy like that. No man should have to endure that at all. I'm surprised that will kept it together and pursued his career after that. I really am.
0: And that's just this week. Uh, Next week, Will is going to share about his run with Dell Earnhardt. And that's another incredible moment that I was able to share with Will. And Steve, in this interview, you're going to hear Will mention his book a few times, and he himself self-published a memoir with the greatest name in the history of NASCAR books. All right. The title of his book is, I was a NASCAR redneck. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> and it is well worth the $45 price tag, including shipping to the U S now listen to the interview and you will have to order Will's book. You can check it out at nascarredneck.com. And hey, look, we're not getting paid for that advertisement. We're not getting <laughs> paid for that endorsement. But I've got a copy of the book. And it is tremendous.
2: I can just imagine.
0: Now, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the July 16th, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene. This week, I reached out to Jeff Markowski on Twitter for a random date, and he came up with July 15th, which is his birthday. And when I asked for a specific year, he gave me 1987. So there was an issue dated July 16th, 1987. So that is our issue of the week.
2: Well, a lot went on in 1987. I'm sure this issue was chock full of that
0: when I saw what issue it was, I kind of, I kind of hesitated a little bit because it's the mid season review and I, you know, basically those kinds of stories typically just rehash everything. But when you consider everything that had happened to that point in 1987, halfway through the year, you're looking at Dell Earnhardt's dominance that year. You're looking at Tim Richmond's last hurrah and a great many things that took place in between. Davy Allison's first win, Bobby Allison's wreck that led to restrictor place So right, yeah, you're talking about a lot of different stuff. You're talking about the 1987, the Winston with the That's, pass in the grass. Yeah, so <laughs> forget.
2: don't forget that one.
0: <laughs> and in this issue, Deb Williams was as busy as she ever was. She had three different features. And Steve, you wrote a commentary about the Bush series. <laughs> Holy cow. It must've been a slow news week for you.
2: <laughs> I can't imagine what came over. me. I think
0: about it. <laughs> now, Steve, this week, we have new Patreon support from Bill Floyd and Mike Polkey. Now, Mike sent me a message yeah. and he said that if I pronounced his name correctly on the podcast, that he would slide us even more support. Via PayPal.
2: All right. And I say it over again say okay. it Slow and say it right.
0: All right. So here's what I'm going to do. All right. We have new Patreon support from Mike Polky. We have new Patreon support from Mike Polky. <laughs> we also have new support from Mike Smith. <laughs> 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 so Mike, if you're out there and you're listening, hopefully I got it right. And hopefully I lived up to the terms That will get us a little bit of extra support on PayPal. But seriously, Mike, thank you for your support. Bill, thank you for your support. It means a lot to us. You help us be able to produce this podcast. Support us on Patreon. Support us on PayPal. Support QWare. Support Brian Kelb. They all help the cause. If you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene bought podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene bought podcast. All right. So we'll first things first. Yes, sir. How did you wind up making the move from Michigan down to the South to begin working NASCAR?
1: Well, I actually moved south to Ohio first, uh, and had a job doing machine design work uh, for a structural steel company that built um, uh, offices and warehouses and, and shopping malls. And, and then we'll probably end up discussing about the accident that happened. That happened in Lebanon, uh, Ohio, and I just felt like I needed to be someplace else, so I moved and. I ended up getting a job. Well, before I moved, I actually got a job um, with a gentleman named Howard Milliken, and I worked at Indianapolis in 1970, probably 90 days after that. A little more than 90 days after that accident, I was working in uh, USAC for Howard Milliken, and Jigger Soroyce was driving the car, and Rick Muther, a, a two car indie effort. And I actually Went from there to Ray Nichols, and then was at Ray Nichols. A guy named Ron Purrier uh, invited me to move south with him to work for Benny Parsons. And so it was at the end of 71, I think, into 70, that I moved south. When I left, I put my car on a trailer and I looked back, and we lived on a lake, and there was a foot of snow on a frozen lake. And when I got to Ellerby, North Carolina, there were peach stands and sandbars all over the place. <laughs>
0: What have I gotten myself into? Well,
1: no, I was happy. <laughs> I ain't that crazy about snow. I was okay to be in his hand. Uh, didn't now, offend me in any way. Now, what were you doing with Benny? I just was a mechanic. Okay. I started to work for Benny Parsons for one hundred dollars a week, working a hundred hours a week. <laughs> and I told my mom once and never again. My mom wasn't a business person, but she she knew how to divide a hundred into a hundred. <laughs> my salary wasn't all that smooth. Now, how long were you with Benny? I was Benny, I, th- I think the whole year, in 1970. And then uh, I went down to work for Joe Frazone, where John Green was the car owner. And then I was Joe Frazone's crew chief. And then I worked up to Cecil Gordon's crew chief. And uh, while I was working with Cecil, Mario Rossi called and invited me to come to Hueytown to work with him with Donnie. And
0: wow. That was probably the single best move that I made you told a story in your book about a huge wreck at talladega where joe broke his arm tell me about that incident that
1: uh, i don't remember the date but it had to be 72 around in there someplace and nascar started 60 cars at talladega that was the last time they ran that many cars and about the 10th or 11th lap um Ramo stott i think he was in junie Dunlevy's car lost a motor and he spun he spun down off the apron and into the infield and the infield for some reason wasn't grass so it stirred up a ton of dirt and it made a cloud and the wind blew that dirt cloud over the racetrack and just made direct worse and uh, we had radios and i called joe i said joe are you okay he didn't come around so i said joe you okay and i didn't hear nothing from him and, then I just heard this real loud noise, and Joe says, that effing driver just ran into me, and one of the drivers had gone all the way around the rack the first time. Oh, wow. And the second time around, spun down off the track and backed into Joe. And he backed into Joe's driver's door, and Joe says, yeah, he says, we're going to need a new windshield. So he came around, and the situation is you take a take the Clips off, take the windshield out, send him out, and go a lap so you don't get a lap down. And when he left, something didn't seem right. So I called Joe on the radio. I said, "Joe, what kind of driver's uniform you got on?" He says, "I got the union uniform. It's one they gave everybody, so it was a, a tan colored." But when I looked in that window, that uniform was red. So I said, "Joe, what's what's going on?" He said, "Just get me the effing windshield in this car." We came back in. I looked down inside there and I could see probably four inches of the bone in his forearm. Wow. And I said, hey, I ain't, you ain't racing this thing. He says, put that effing windshield in that car. I said, I ain't gonna do it. He says, you work for me. If you don't put that windshield in there, I'm gonna come out there and kick your butt. Well, you can't put the windshield in. I said, "What? if I put the windshield in, what are you, how are you gonna hold on to it? He said, I want you to put two, right, two, rolls, two wraps of gray tape around my arm and then taped my left hand to the steering wheel. I said, Joe, you're just crazy. I ain't I ain't doing it. And That's said, not
0: funny, but it's funny. Well,
1: today it's funny. It wasn't yeah. funny then. And he he wanted to go, so I went and raised the hood and reached over and pulled the coil wire out. That wasn't the best decision to ever make. That bit me pretty hard, but I, I said, we're shutting the motor off. He came out of that car. He was going to kick my butt. So I made my way to the infield care center we did not make it all the way to the infield care center before he passed out on the ground
0: wow. now you mentioned the fact that you went to work for dieguard in the very early days of that team and you yep. said that it was the best decision that you had made to that point why is that well
1: i've always liked collecting details so i read a book and Back over here, I have probably a collection. And when I went to Donnie's, I think I had at that time about forty-four books in a milk crate. I bring these books in. I'm thinking they're going to be impressed that I've read all these books. And so I asked Donnie, I said, "Where you want me to put these books?" And he said, "Over there behind the air compressor. <laughs> put a case of oil on them so they don't get they don't get blown away or something like that." I kind of knew then how that was going to go. But um, Rossi taught me how to think a lot of things. He always made me assign a probable cause to what was causing the problem, so I had a you know a base from which to start to fix the issues. And and Donnie and I would butt heads on occasion, but he never ever belittled me. And I had a respect for that right off the bat. We would argue and talk but he, if you know Donnie, he gets this look in his eye and he comes up and he puts his finger in your chest and he says, I'm gonna tell you what. <laughs> or let me tell you this. Yeah. But I knew right from the get-go, I may not have always agreed with what Donnie said, but I always believed him. <laughs> I mean, I knew that's what he thought. And he was very instrumental in making me understand when a car, when the book said oversteer, this is what it felt like. <laughs> And he was the one that was instrumental in, in when I went off to have my own team before we had radios, in, in being able to identify with hand signals what the car was doing uh, going into the turn. Or where So we would always want to, I would always want to know where's your hand, which foot is on which pedal, and how hard. And by doing that, you understood if it was a problem with the front of the car or a problem with the rear of the car. And then Rossi. Showed me, um, loaned me overnight, a copy of something that Larry Rathcap had made for Richard Petty, and it was a computer printout. I learned to try to evaluate a car to learn what those roll couple figures were, and it kind of it kind of worked to my benefit. Had I come across a couple bags of money, it might might have been a different situation. But I'm, I'm appreciative of what Donnie did for me, and he's stuck with me until I understood, and, and, and then at the end, I, I wish that had worked out better. Donnie and I got let go from die guard, I think, within a day of each other, and neither of us quite understands.
0: I was going to ask, it seemed like there was turmoil with that team almost from day one. Uh, I, I understand that there was a little bit of friction between Donnie and Mario, and then Donnie and the Gardner brothers. Even at that point, even so early in that team, what do you remember about any of that, if anything? I remember the
1: turmoil between Donnie and Dygard. I've since learned why. Um, I respectfully uh, declined to discuss that. Donnie <laughs> has said he's, he's, yeah. so he'd like to deal with that. So he, 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 I kind of understood what they were, so I understand what his were. I don't have a clue. They let me go the same a day before. I think they let Rossi go. I don't think I had any ill feelings with them. Yeah. Um, I write in a story about a a pit wagon that I built, and I built that. I wanted to build it, and they wouldn't give me the money to build a pit wagon. But <laughs> Rossi... Yeah. said you just you go get it and give me the receipts and he'd turn it in on his expense report. It took a piece of steel and a couple pieces of aluminum. I don't know what the deal was. That miffed me a little, but not enough to get I don't think we had any problems here. And I didn't know to just recently that Donnie and Mario had issues. I remember one one issue they had, but Rossi was always good to me and I really liked working with Donnie. I, I you could always believe what Donnie said. I don't consider myself a huge commentator on driver abilities, but I watched Donnie put that car places I saw other people weren't going. Uh, he knew what he wanted, and he would <laughs> make sure you understood what he wanted. And we went fast. I mean, I I, I miss I miss that a lot. But the the issue they had with uh, that Donnie, the only issue that I knew about Mario and Donnie was that the motor that we sat on the pole in 75 for the 500 and the 400 in a die guard car. And that motor was built by uh, Grumpy Jenkins and he spent some time down there and and the basis of, I've got a book that I've written, a vehicle dynamics book, that's not been published, because I saw three valve springs in the head of this motor and, and I I have an idea that that's true for wheel frequencies in the chassis, um, but the issue was in that particular motor, Donnie had told Jenkins that, uh, or Jenkins had asked Donnie to make sure nobody saw that carburetor and that intake set up. And at one point, Mario took that carburetor and, and intake down to Smokey's and Donnie found out about it and tore out after him and he walked in worked past, I don't remember what Johnson's first name was but that worked for Smokey, but he was a big boy, pushed past him and got into the office where Smokey and Rossi were and said, Rossi, I told Bill we'd not show that anybody. And I remember to this day, Smokey's respect for Donnie was such that he said, Rossi, get that out of here. Smokey turned down an option to look at that because Donnie had given his word to smokey and smokey was that respectful of donnie that he honored that 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 gave me a lot of enthusiasm for liking donnie allison and smokey and um, spent a lot more time with donnie than i did smokey
0: now you've mentioned mario rossi several times and Fans today don't really remember him. Who was the Mario Rossi that you knew? Who was he?
1: I just remember him being a diligent advocator of details. He just, it just didn't make any difference how long it took. If there was a list of things that had to be done, we did it. And when I was at Dygaard, I I would categorize my job now as a, a car chief, I guess. But that would run out at dinner, and I'd come back' cause after work after dinner because Rossi was working in the engine room and I could go out and diddle with some of the stuff and make little stuff out in the shop. But rossi would let me i thought let me you know change the valve covers or you know clean parts trying to learn something, and he just was a great attention to detail, and he always kept repeating, see if you can determine if if you can assign a probable cause for your issues. Um, I just had a great deal of respect for Rossi and Donnie, but in writing the book, somewhere in there I made a comment that as many miles as I put on that <laughs> truck driving the car from racetrack to racetrack, we couldn't keep Donnie in that car for 100 miles. I, I didn't realize at the time, I knew we had motor problems, but I'm surprised Donnie didn't, uh, I'm certain Donnie was disheartened at how many times we had to pull out because of a, a, a blown motor. and I, I know Rossi was trying, I thought Rossi was brilliant, I understood, if he told me what he was doing, I understood it, I never never shared in any of his decisions, but he thought before he did something, and I, I, think, I think in hindsight he was so intent on going fast, he might have lost a little bit about durability, but that was his interest, was to go fast, he was a motor man and I,
0: I'm I'm proud of my association with both Donnie and Mario. Now, if I read your book correctly, and you've mentioned it, you and Donnie were released by Die the same day, if not maybe a day apart or whatever. What happened? You
1: know, I I do not know. I initially thought I was let go because of Donnie. Because while Donnie and I would butt heads, he was very respectful of my opinion. He never... know if he didn't agree with it he'd just come up put that hand in my chest and say let me tell you this like i said but i believed him but i was always looking for answers i I really was enthused about vehicle dynamics and we lived there in daytona and so i just one time i just called down to cape canaveral and i i still don't know how this happened but i got a hold of one of them engineers i said hey you got any leftover computers that can get tell us what g what g forces were developing in the car they danced around it a couple, three months, and the guy finally came back. He says, "Yeah, we got something we'd sell you." And my recollection was it was like fourteen thousand dollars and weighed sixty pounds. <laughs> well, you know, in nowadays that's candy yeah. money, yeah, yeah, and miserable weight. But yeah. back then, we were putting no, it was, it was uh, forty pounds, but we were putting sixty pounds of lead of lead in a certain spot. So I'm thinking this is a piece of cake. We'll take out forty pounds of lead, put a forty-pound computer in there. And dieguard I don't know that I got an answer from dieguard about the money, and I just, and but Donnie said, we ain't putting that thing in here. If we change this car, it's going to be um, based on what I, what I want to put in the car, and I res I respected that, and I didn't think nothing about it. But then when I got we got let go, I thought crap. That's all I could think of was Donnie was PO'd because I was trying to override his authority or something. But as it turns out, I learned later, Donnie got let go the next day, so it wasn't Donnie.
0: Now, how did you wind
1: up working for Ricky Rudd? Humpy Wheeler. Humpy Humpy Wheeler was very, very good to me. He was instrumental in me getting started both with Ricky and with Dale. In, uh, In 75, I had been working with Janet Guthrie the year before while I was working with Ralph Moody. And I was, wasn't was a full-time employee. You know, I'd, I'd work when he had cars and stuff to work on. But at night, and I'd leave early and go home, I started my own shop in Fort Mill. And uh, Humpy knew that. So he'd, he'd seen that uh, Ricky was struggling a little bit trying to work out of Virginia. So he got a hold of Al Rudd, Sr. And he got us together, and we started, I, I don't remember, the third race of the year, I think. And uh, it, it worked out really good. It, it, the thing that I'll just impress me the most about working with Ricky, I spent some time talking with Ricky on the phone writing the book. We ran 25 races together. 10 of those races, which is 40% of the races that we entered, we finished in the top 10. More impressive to me, and I had to call Ricky twice to confirm this, we did it with one car. We ran 20 five races with one car and the best we ran was at talladega and in the book i read about this his dad i guess it's okay to tell you this he said his dad bought a motor we lost a motor so his dad went down and bought a motor from robert yates i didn't know this till later but it was on credit and we finished fourth in that race i think we ran really really well and it turns out the paycheck for our Talladega race was $15 more than he owed <laughs> Robert for the motor. So I, I didn't know that until I talked to yeah. Ricky. I mean, I knew wow. we got the motor, but I didn't yeah. realize that that, that, that that was that close. But I was I'm very, very impressed. I went and did some research. We never fall, fell out of a race because of a crash. I have one picture of our of the right front corner while it's still in the black and gold uh, paint scheme at Rockingham. And I looked up the records and we did not, we lost a motor that race. We didn't crash. So he, my assumption was that he blew a motor and, and hit the wall with it. But I was very, very impressed with Ricky too because we ran 25 races with one car. And he shared with me the truck we pulled that thing around in it was a dually truck that. Yeah, it was a dually truck that they a pickup that they'd taken the back off and put a twenty foot box on the back, a sixteen foot box on the back. Didn't have any, didn't have very good brakes. If you if you read the story, you, I bounced him out of the sleeper on the way to Nashville, and I never knew him when he was when they called him Rooster, but I could tell he he was calm and tenacious because when I avoided a wreck by going off into the inner into the grass between the lanes of the highway over there on 40 bounced him out of the sleeper onto the seat and he just if you read the book you know he used to call me uncle bud he said uncle bud what the hell are you doing out here in the grass and i said look out that window and looked out the window and he could see that there was a wreck up there on the interstate he just crawled back in the sleeper and went to sleep he didn't say <laughs> nothing didn't bother <laughs> what still while we're still just driving on the, in the grass there he said well i was impressed he was a pretty tough boy back then even even before they came to call him Rooster the name of the story in the book is Rooster Tales but.
0: Well, I think it's impressive that you evidently think that much of him even though he was so young into his career at that point
1: also I, I met Ricky before then when I was with Donnie um, it, it, at some point we were at Martinsville did really really well and we are running real good but we were running out of brakes. and then he, he got kind of he ran into somebody we came in and we found out that he lost his brake pads for some reason and he said that number 10 car just backed into me well he didn't back into him donnie ran into him but after the race when the drivers pulled in the number 10 car pulled up next to us while we were loading our car and coming out of that car i write in the book was a size um a size 28 boy in a size 40 driving uniform. <laughs> he had got in Bill Champion's car in the middle of the race. Bill Champion had sponsored him in the local some go-karts and maybe some local stuff without telling anybody, NASCAR or anybody. Ricky just went and got one of Bill's old driver's uniform and got on and relieved Bill Champion in a NASCAR race. NASCAR didn't know it was him, didn't know it was a kid or nothing. He, he drove that race and drove, drove pretty good, I thought, <laughs>
0: You mentioned an accident earlier, uh, and I didn't exactly know how I was going to bring it up, but Greg Heller is not a name that's familiar to a lot of NASCAR people, but he did run a couple of races in in the late 1970s, and he became a close friend of yours. Extremely close. You two had this bond that was really forged out of some incredible tragedies. Um. Tell me about your friendship with Greg. Well, it's a little difficult to talk about,
1: but he. We met. We were talking one day at Charlotte about something. He'd been driving our car, and and, uh, somehow he had heard that I'd lost my family and two little girls in a car, right? And we just were talking about it, and he he said that he had lost a daughter. (laughs) This is. He'd lost a daughter to cancer and, and later on, we, we just had this gut feeling between each other when something occurred in our life, the other one was there. And later, he had a boy get killed because he ran into a guy wire to a telephone pole and it killed him. And he told me about it, and in the morning, he was in the Bois, Pennsylvania in the morning. I was on his porch when my dad died, he surprised me being at the funeral. We we just have we just have this bond that that people I I think maybe that haven't lost children un- understand you just I, I don't know we we just many things we were we we liked each other. Um, he was the first grown man that I ever. Told that I loved, because he he said that to me first, and and I don't know, I we just have a terribly close bond, but we don't hang out. <laughs> it's just amazing. It just seems like it, it takes like a tragedy for us to get together. But he's just he's been right there, and and, and because of what happened to his boy. Um, I, I was up there one time and his dad called us into his office his dad cletus was just really good to me and he said and he wanted greg to quit racing because there was he was kind of losing family members you know And he said he didn't want something to happen to him so they said uh, so cletus said uh, uh greg what should we or greg said if you want me to quit racing what do you want me to do with all our stuff and he says well why don't we give that to your friend in South Carolina? And they gave me his race car, a spare motor, he owned a spring company so I probably got way over 100 springs, gears, wheels and tires and sway bars. He just gave me a multitude of things to continue my career and he gave just, it just, he gave it to me. Gave it to you. Absolutely gave it to me. Wow. I have, I don't have the words to thank that guy.
0: You want to take a break? Yeah. All right. All right. So, Steve, try this one on for size. Will Cronkrite went to work for Benny Parsons in late 1970, early 1971, somewhere in there for $100 a week, and he was working a hundred hours a week.
2: <laughs> well, Rick, I got to tell you, when I started my <laughs> journalism career in Martinsville, I was making $106 a week, but I sure wasn't working a hundred hours a week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was something else. I just had, I had a shiver go down my spine. How can anybody work for that little pay for that much work? I don't know, but. I guess it was worth it. He was working in NASCAR. Now, from Benny's, Will went over to serve as the crew chief for Joe Frasson. And Steve, 1973, Winston 500 at Talladega. Joe gets involved in a big wreck, and he comes in, and he wants Will to repair the car, put a new windshield in. And Will looks in the window, and he can see four inches of the bone of Joe's arm sticking out. And Joe wants to go back on the racetrack.
2: Yeah. Unbelievable.
0: Here's a guy who has a bone sticking out of his arm and he wants to head back out on the racetrack. And he ordered, he ordered will to wrap a couple of rounds of duct tape around his arm to kind of hold his arm in place and then tape his hand to the steering wheel. Now I will say this. I'm sure that that had as much to do with absolute shock as it did being a hardcore racer.
2: Absolutely. I think you're right. Uh, Joe was quite the character. He was an independent driver. Uh, He wore this floppy looking silly hat all the time. And uh, he looked like a character right out of deliverance, (laughs) but Uh, This proves that Joe is a lot more than just a simple, funny guy. He was a hardcore race driver. And yeah, shock may have played a role in what he was trying to do, but he still wanted to get out there. No question about it. He had that competitive urge.
0: Now, Will, of course, refused. He knew that he could not send Joe back out on the racetrack. But in order to get Joe to back down, he actually had to pull a coil wire off the car to get (laughs) Joe out. And then as they walked to the Enfield Care Center, Joe passed out.
2: Now, Rick, if I'm right, that accident in 1973 is a big multi-car accident. The one we call the big one today that Joe was involved in. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Wendell Scott was so injured in that race that his career was effectively over, right?
0: Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was in this accident.
2: I think you're right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So then Will went to work for Dygard in the early days of that organization when they were still in Alabama at Donnie Allison's shop. And then he also made the move over to Daytona. And he said that he and Donnie Allison butted heads a few times. Now, I can't imagine anybody... Buttonheads with Donnie Allison. (laughs) (laughs) You think? (laughs) Now, Will did say that it wasn't a case where they were at each other's throats. They simply disagreed, and Will said that Donnie never belittled him. He never went overboard in their disagreements. He said that Donnie also helped him understand how to translate what the book said about a car's handling to what it actually felt like on the racetrack.
2: As we all know, Rick, communication is key in racing. And one of the key elements of that is the driver's ability to tell the crew chief or the crewman how the car is handling so that work can be done on it and make it better.
0: He and Donnie were actually let go from die guard, if not the same day, then within a day or so of each other. And he really didn't know why he had been sent packing.
2: Well, Ricky we all know he wouldn't be the last one to experience that type of thing at that card.
0: Like cliff champion will also worked with Ricky Rudd and was his crew chief in 1977 when Ricky won the rookie of the year title. Now, will was evidently a big fan of Ricky's in 25 races together that year. They finished in the top 10, 10 times. And according to will, they used the same car
2: <laughs>
0: in every race.
2: How about that? That kind of thing went on back then, as you know, uh, Rick, because the independent teams didn't have much, and it was not unusual to use the same car several times.
0: What's more, even for a young driver like Ricky was at the time, they never fell out of a single race that year because of a crash.
2: Now that's remarkable, really.
0: For a young driver to have that kind of car control. That that says something about Ricky's talents.
2: It really does.
0: Now, Steve, it is hard for me to even say these words, but Will, as we mentioned in the intro, had experienced the kind of loss that is simply beyond comprehension. Uh, He and his wife, Sandy, had endured the midterm miscarriage. They had had another stillborn daughter. Then they had their daughter, Kelly. And Steve, Sandy, Kelly, and an unborn child that that Sandy was pregnant with at the time, they were all killed in an accident in Lebanon, Ohio, just before Christmas in 1969. Now, uh, that is actually what caused Will to move. He and and I can understand it. He had sure. to get away from that area. Sure. And he went to Indy, and then he went to Elba, North Carolina, where he went to work for Benny. But Steve, he wound up meeting a guy by the name of Greg Heller, and Greg is not a name that most, if not all, race fans are going to remember. Greg ran two Winston Cup races in his career. He ran one at Pocono in 1977. He ran the other at Dover the following year. I think he attempted to qualify for several races and didn't make the field, He finished 29th in both of the events for which he did qualify. But Steve, the thing about Greg and the place that he holds in Will's life is they struck up a friendship, just as racers have a way of doing. And at Charlotte, they were walking down pit road at the end of the day, when Greg got kind of emotional and told Will that he had just lost his daughter to cancer. Oh my goodness. Now, Steve, you and I are parents. Sure. And so we can't imagine what it would be like to walk down that road. Now, Will was able to look at Greg and say, I understand. And so that's when Will started to get really emotional. He talked about the loss that Greg had experienced. Will told Greg what had happened in his own life. And When uh, Greg and his dad decided that it was time for them to get out of racing, uh, they weren't exactly comfortable with the dangers, evidently, uh, with everything that had gone on in their family. Uh, They gave Will everything in their inventory. Gave it it to him. Gave it to him. Hmm. Gave, Gave him a 1978 Ford race car an engine, rearing gears, springs, wheels, headers, a transmission, windshield, a spring tester.
2: Rick, I think that shows you just what kindred spirits those two men became. I mean, they shared adversity and emotional moments with each other. I think that bound them together. And I think the proof of that is what Greg did for his friend, Will. He gave him a huge inventory of racing stuff. That's, that's
0: remarkable. Here's the unknowable thing about this entire story. Several years later, Greg lost another child in an accident. Unbelievable. And he called Will to tell Will about it. And the next day, Will was sitting on his doorstep in Pennsylvania.
2: Kendrick spirits never go away, do they, Rick?
0: No, they, they do not. Now, when Will talked about all this it was probably one of the most emotional moments in an interview that I had ever experienced. I had no idea how to proceed. As a journalist, you learn very quickly to be quiet and let the person talk. And that actually went through my head. I, I told myself, you need, you need to just be quiet as a human being in general. And as a Christian in particular, I wanted to reach out to Will and attempt to comfort him. So, that's when I asked him if he wanted to take a break. And when he did, we did wind up talking for several minutes. So, again, Will, man, my heart goes out to you, even now, all these years later, man.
2: Well, I can certainly understand that, Rick. I mean, hearing those stories about Greg and about Will would just make anyone emotional.
0: Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Uh, this past week, <laughs> oh, here we go again. <laughs> he threw open the doors to the museum and it's available to his customers and to our listeners. And it's some incredible stuff all kinds of t shirts, ball caps. It is well worth the trip over to his website to see just what he has available.
2: Well, as they say in those old-time commercials, Rick, you are not going to believe your eyes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, listeners, if you can, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the July 16th, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene featured a review of the first half of the 1987 Winston Cup season. <laughs> and what a crazy jam-packed season it had been to that point. Absolutely. Topsy-turvy. No two ways about <laughs> it. Dale Earnhardt had already won seven races, and he led Bill Elliott by 327 points in the Winston Cup standings to that point.
2: Well, Dale and Bill put on quite the show in 1987,
0: right? Well, they had already been involved in a heated confrontation during and after the Winston all-star race at Charlotte. There was the infamous pass in the grass that wasn't a pass at all. (laughs) Bill had ran into Dale on the cool down lap. And after that race, Dale and Bill, they were both. They were both steaming as hard as their cars were. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. Now, I know many of our listeners have seen that video of the 1987 Winston pass in the grass. Well, that happened when Bill knocked Dale into the grass, coming down the front stretch, and Dale recovered his car and held the lead as he got back onto the track. That was an amazing piece of driving, and there were several riders in the press that came out of their seats when they saw that, <laughs> literally.
0: Now, Bill went on to qualify at Talladega at a speed of 212.809 miles an hour. That was the fastest qualifying lap of all time in NASCAR and a mark that will never, ever be broken. Ever.
2: Yeah, simp- simply because NASCAR is not going to let any car Exceed 200 miles an hour in qualifying ever again, thanks to the plates.
0: And why are they not going to let them exceed that kind what? of speed? What Tom, happened in Tom. this race? That's right. <laughs> it was this same race at Talladega where Bobby Allison wrecked and tore down the very long stretch of catch fencing. And as you mentioned, that's a wreck that continues to impact the sport today in a very real way because that's the wreck that brought about the use of restrictor plates
2: absolutely and uh i tell you what if bobby had gone into the grandstands no no we wouldn't be racing today
0: now davy allison went on to win that race that was the first victory of his all too short career another career that was far too short was tim richman and this story mentioned the fact that he had been out of action with what at the time was called double pneumonia when in fact it, of course it was aids so He returned during the Winston and then went on to win at Pocono and Riverside. It wouldn't be long after this issue was released, however, that Tim was out of that car again. And that was the last the Winston Cup circuit would ever see of him as a competitor.
2: Well, the Tim Richmond saga is really a sad and tragic one because everyone who knew Tim has speculated on how great his career would have been if it hadn't turned out this way. And I don't think there's any argument about it. He probably would have gone on to be one of the best in
0: NASCAR. Dieguard racing shut down for good. Yeah. That yeah. year, Richard Petty broke a couple of ribs at Dover and was replaced on the pace laps at Pocono and Riverside by Joe Ruttman. Terry Labonte broke his right shoulder blade at Darlington and he turned his car over to Brett Bodine at North Wilkesboro in Bristol Again, on the pace laps, and by doing that, both Richard and Terry were able to maintain their consecutive race streaks. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little <laughs> dubious. but <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, that's the way the rule book read back then, so they took advantage of it.
0: There was a feature in this issue by Deb Williams on the sports car racer Rick Noop, who gave NASCAR a brief try with one start in 1981, another in 1986, and three In 1987. Now, Steve, can you imagine (laughs) a sports car guy walking into Bristol? You talk about wide eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Rick said in Deb's story, visually, Bristol is incredible. I couldn't believe it. One lap at Le Mans, France is 8.2 miles. And now I'm looking at a place called Bristol, which is half a mile. Bristol made me feel like I was a hamster running around its Ferris wheel. (laughs) (laughs) I'd stop stop and take a drink of water and then start running around again, just as hard (laughs) as I could go. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Another feature by Deb was on brothers, Walter and Gary Smith who were working for Lake Speed at the time. Walter was Lake's Jack man while Gary changed tires. Now at the time, Gary operated a Nautilus fitness center in Kannapolis while Walter had one in nearby Cornelius. Yeah. I went to
2: Gary's many times.
0: Did you really? Yes, sir. Okay. Several people in the racing community frequented their gyms to work out. Waddell Wilson lifted weights. Buddy Baker was evidently a big racquetball player and Humpy Wheeler would come in to box. Now, did you ever box Humpy Wheeler?
2: Uh, no, but I did see him spar a few times at that fitness center. Humpy was into boxing. I think he actually promoted some fights around the Charlotte area.
0: Did you ever play racquetball with Buddy Baker?
2: <laughs> no, I can't say that I ever saw him there. Carl <laughs> <Not Liddell>, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Walter said Humpy will come in here, and he's more or less an aerobic demon. He'll work out. To get his heart rate up and keep it up. He'll do aerobic boxing and wear out our treadmill. Humpy will come in and if there's nobody to box with, he'll put on the gloves and beat on the concrete wall. <laughs> I wonder if there was a picture of Bruton taped there. Oh, wait, did I say that? I'm sorry. Sorry. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> he'll say he's got to work out some of his frustrations. Now in 1987. There weren't really any specialized, over-the-wall-only guys, no former NFL athletes, no track athletes or anything like that. This was way before that tide started to turn, wasn't it, Steve?
2: At that time, I don't think there were very many, if any, pit crew coaches, fitness coaches, or anything like that associated with the team. But that was starting to change.
0: Well, I think people certainly practice their pit stops, but it was basically guys in the shop at the end of the day, or maybe on their lunch break or whatever. And they would run through the pit stop a couple of times, two or three times. Exactly. And, And that would be the extent of their training. It was well before all the specialization came in. Now, Gary said, anybody who goes over the wall really needs to be in shape. You have to be quick and have agility. So staying in shape really makes a big difference. I don't really have a problem with the job I do or any of the jobs I've done, and I know my brother doesn't either because we train three days a week with weights. The days we don't work out, we're either jogging or playing racquetball, so we do stay fit. Now, I know Walter worked for a number of teams as a pit crew coach, including Hendrick Motorsports. I want to say that Walter was Terry Labonte's man when he won the championship? I, I think. think so, yeah. Okay. It seems to me like I remember Walter in particular with Hendrick Motorsports and Terry Labonte. I could be wrong. I know that would be a shock to most people that I could be wrong about something. <laughs> but he also worked for Dell Earnhardt Incorporated, Michael Walter Bracing, and Stuart Haas Racing. Now, that being said, maybe Deb was onto something with this whole trend before it was a trend of well, specialized Gary, pit crew members.
2: Jerry yeah, and Walter deserve a lot of credit for their forward thinking about how pit crewmen should be athletes and therefore stay in shape as athletes. It made the whole situation better on down the road.
0: Today would have been Dick Hutcherson's birthday. I saw that on social media this morning. Okay today that we record this we're recording this on monday november 30th and that evidently would have been dick Hutcherson's birthday and deb had another feature on dick the former driver and car builder and certainly parts supplier who was also heavily involved in Pasafina show horses
2: really i did yeah. not know that
0: well evidently you didn't read grand national scene <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't remember it. there is a difference <laughs> Now, at the time, Ron and his wife, Brenda, owned 12 horses, including one that had recently been named the Paso Fino Division's Reserve Grand National Champion. Grand National Champion. How about that?
2: Yeah. Oh, you know who else was in Paso Fino Horses into it? No, I do not. Ernie Irvin. Really? That's a fact. You know, I talked to him about it. I didn't understand what the deal was with show horses. But as he started to tell me about it, man, it is a lot of work. No doubt about it.
0: Now, uh, there was also news in this issue that Charlotte's Bush Series race that fall would be split into two segments. The first would end after 101 laps were completed, at which point cars would be stopped for 15 minutes on pit road where they could be serviced and refueled, evidently decaled in 15 minutes or whatever. But, Steve, in your commentary, You apparently were not a big fan of the move. Okay.
2: Uh, no, I was not. I didn't particularly like that situation and look what it's become today in the cup series. We now have stage racing sound familiar
0: in your commentary. You wrote with segment racing. It's created something that is basically unfair to the fans upon examination. It stands to reason that the first half of the race will be dull. What competitor is going to take a chance or even race with someone when he knows that the race is going to be stopped at the halfway point and allow him to make whatever improvements he needs to his car? The fact that the higher he finishes in the first half gives him a higher starting position in the second does little to motivate him. Believe me, if his car is working, 100 laps is ample time to come from the back to the front. If that is the case, then what Charlotte is offering to the ticket buyers is at most 98 laps of competitive racing for the price of what is supposed to be a 200-lap event. In other words, it is half the racing for the same ticket price. After all, was it the Winston, in reality, 10 laps of racing for its ticket price? Now, Steve, first of all, it does my heart good to see you issue such an impassioned column about the Bush series. <laughs> I mean, it's just the Bush series.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Rick, sometimes I have a lapse in judgment. But in this case, I thought I made a very good point out of what they were trying to do. And as I recall, I don't think Charlotte ever did it again.
0: I do not believe that they did. But also, listen to you cracking on stage racing ahead of Uh, your time man (laughs) well
2: (laughs) that's exactly what it was back then and i think that it's pretty similar today i'm not a big fan of stage racing i understand why they do it yeah i understand why they do it but it's somewhat complicated and i think it slows down the action Hi, this is Tommy Houston. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
0: Steve, this week, I got a Facebook message from Lane Clark, who is a police officer up in Martinsville. And Steve, he evidently passes time on his night shifts listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Now, can you imagine an officer of the law patrolling the main streets of Martinsville at night, trying to keep the peace while listening to our silly little podcast? Citizens, be alert! Be <laughs> alert! <laughs> Steve, I don't think that was—I don't think I did a very good job of relaying what, how emotional. I mean.
2: I, I think you did pretty good. I mean, it's hard to do, Rick. Right?
0: Yeah. I, well, honestly, it, the the moment itself, I think, will be explanation enough.
1: So. Sure, sure. yeah. Do him, thought.
0: Yeah.